Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I'm grateful for you listening to the 58th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. The goal this week, uh, the goal every week, is to be worth your time. This week, we're going to do that with a few specific points about the Royals, questions about John Sherman, chief salary cap going forward, and an interesting idea from a listener about getting the NHL here. The bonus section will be with Royals general manager Dayton Moore, who I thought was really insightful and expansive on how the club is viewing these top prospects and the sort of, you know, educated to guesswork that goes into bringing guys from the minor leagues to the big leagues. I thought this was a really good week to do it, too, with, uh, you know, Jackson Coar obviously having a, a horrendous uh, debut the other night in, in Anaheim, and Bobby Witt Jr. maybe, possibly, perhaps not being too far uh, behind on, on getting his chance to debut. So, anyway, let's get right to it. Uh, we're going to go hard on the Royals this week, and I want to make two specific points that I think help explain a lot about where they are and where they want to be. And some of this will be su- supplemented, I should say, with, with Dayton in the third section, too. So, like I said, lots of Royals this week. Okay, the, the first point is, in some ways, expanding on something I wrote uh, in a column earlier this week, which obviously I hope you read. There's a lot of good stuff in there from Dayton. But I think that, you know, when we watch the Royals this year, it, it might help if we keep in mind that this is a team under a not insignificant amount of pressure to win. Um, you know, they still have you know, relatively new owner, you know, who bought a team that had lost 100 games in consecutive years, then the pandemic last year. And he's a long-term thinker, but uh, I also don't believe he's in this to just start winning in like three years or whatever. You know what I mean? And, and Dayton Moore's front office has always been aggressive. Um, look, they're, they're far from perfect, right? But those guys are as competitive as anyone. Uh, but I do think there are some subtle things going on that reflect what I'm talking about here with the ownership change. Like, uh, you know, I, I believe the biggest difference between these Royals, this team, this summer, uh, and the teams of, you know, two, three, four years ago is just a daily focus, like an urgency. And look, like Ned Yost used to get mad at me uh, when I brought this up and he he would like mock me uh, sometimes. But this is true. Like it's he can say what he wants, but this is true. His last few teams, they just they tended to be a little too comfortable. You know what I mean? Like they won the World Series and they said all the right things, but the play and the decisions and stuff like that just it didn't match up with a team that was like desperate for success or respect or whatever. So this is different now. And I think you can see it in some of the personnel moves, Um, you know, the signings of, you know, Carlos Santana, Mike Miner, the the Andrew Benintendi trade. That was a win now move. Uh, But I think you can see it most obviously in the way that Matheny manages, particularly with the bullpen. Like, you know, Jake Brents is a rookie. And depending on the day, he's either leading the league in appearances or, or close to it. Scott Barlow isn't far behind. You know, the Royals are fourth in the league in, in pitching changes. And, you know, that that's a double-edged kind of deal because, you know, there is no doubt that the Royals have won and been in position to win more games because of this approach, uh, you know, of just sort of a hyper-focus trying to win each and every night. Um, and, you know, depending on how much help they can get from guys in the minor leagues right now, I also think we're going to see some guys burned out or wearing thin into the summer, especially, you know, after we had a, just a, a 60-game season last last year. So, you know, but the backdrop of all this and the part I'm trying to get to here is that the Royals are in this place where, like, they need to win and, and, and they're aggressive about it. This team believes it should be competing for the playoffs. They also know that they need some help from these rookies and minor leagues 
minor leaguers to get there. And, you know, this is a much different dance than it was back in 2011 and 2012. You know, those days, like, we often, like, kind of shorthand those with, you know, Ned talking about leaving Alcides Escobar to bat in big situations, right? He wasn't going to pinch hit for Alcides Escobar because there was going to be a time that he would need Alcides Escobar to hit in, in those big situations. <laughs> Absolutely the right call, right? Like, history proved that beyond a doubt. Uh, you know, Ned Yost is, is <laughs> he's going to be in the Royals Hall of Fame and may even have his number retired someday because of all that. But for a lot of reasons, you know, the lack of urgency from 2016 on, the change of ownership and, and some other things, like the Royals can't operate in that same way. They just can't do it the way that they did it, um, you know, from 2010 up until the parade. And, you know, there's this interesting effect here where it makes the losses feel bigger. You know what I mean? Like the problems are harder to solve, but you look up and the Royals are right there around 500 with absolutely nobody playing above their heads and with their best starting pitcher on the IL, you know, their best reliever going through a knee thing, um, two guys in the middle of the order giving them nothing, their rookies so far giving them less than nothing. Their highest ceiling guy has played seven games so far. Um, you know, this team, it's, it's just an inkblot test. You know what I mean? Like, you can make them whatever you want. Like, you, you can certainly pick them apart and focus on why they might end up losing 90-some games. You know what I mean? And you can also look at a group that's at least treading water here and could get better as the season goes on. So I, I think what we're seeing, though, um, overall is just a team that sort of has a foot in both worlds. You know, um, these guys, they're beyond that stage where the individual progress means more than the record. You know what I mean? And and they're also not quite at the stage where they have a right to expect a playoff spot. And, you know, most of all, I think they're in this place where to get where they can be, they need some guys. And I'm thinking not just about like Jackson Coar and Daniel Lynch and Bobby Witt Jr. and Chris Bubich, but like also guys like Mondesi and, you know, even Michael A. Taylor. Like they're going to need at least a few guys to do things that they've never done before in the big leagues. That's just where they're at uh, to get where they want to be. So, okay, the the second point I want to make about this team is somewhat related but more specific. And, and this is about the pitchers. And, and you know, this thing we've seen here where guys, like when they're good, they're good. Uh, but when they're not, they've got a hard time coming out of it. And, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend to be able to break down exactly what's going on with this. You know, the, the first place you look in these sorts of things is the pitching coach. And I, I did think it was interesting that Mike Matheny kept on Cal Eldred when, when he got the job. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, Eldred pitched 15 years in the big leagues. And, you know, he has a relationship with Matheny. Uh, he's respected in the business. He has a strong rapport with some key guys on that staff. Uh, you know, most specifically, probably Brad Keller. Uh, there's obviously something going on this year. Uh, the pitching has not been as good as it needs to be. And, you know, th this is not a call for Cal's head, right? Uh, and not just because I have this deep-seated belief that most fans and media way overrate the effect of coaching changes and way underrate the level of responsibility that players have for their own performance. Um, like, it's just so wild to me that when things go well, we all credit players, right? When things are going well, it's, uh, look at the players. But when things go poorly... I don't know why we just tend to focus on the coaches, you know, and the guys who are just like not making the pitches or, you know, not taking the swings. But anyway, I, I do think that some of this is about young players finding exactly what they can get by with. You know what I mean? And what works and what doesn't. 
against the best hitters in the world. And at least some of this is guys learning how to slow the game down when it speeds up, you know, make specific pitches and specific counts and specific moments in the game, you know, with some stud at the plate and two guys on and the right pitch being the difference between getting out of that inning and giving up three runs. But, you know, we we know how these things work, right? Like we know that coaches are much more replaceable than players especially top shelf talent. So if we see this continue, you know, where guys aren't able to make adjustments or or get out of bad funks when they start, then, you know, at some point the club might be wondering if a different voice might help. So anyway, just something to keep in mind as we go forward. Okay, before we move on to the rest of the show, my early spiel, you might have noticed, is is gone because this one is now longer because this is where I make my asks, right? I make three asks and... This is where we do it. The the first ask, please support us if you're not already. Uh, give the Sports Pass a try. It's it's a dollar a month for the first three months or thirty dollars for a year. Just reach out to me, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and and I'll send I'll send the link to you. The second, please rate and review the podcast. Uh, Savannah and I appreciate all the love you guys have given us already. And I see you because the number of five-star reviews we've had has more than doubled since I actually like started asking you guys to do it. So so thank you, thank you, thank you. But I'm just saying, if you haven't already done that, uh, if you haven't already given us a, a rating and review, please do it. It helps us get the word out. Five stars only uh, help us out here. And the third thing I'm going to ask, if you want to participate in next week's show, and I hope you do, please call 816 816- Two three four four three six five. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone. Call anytime. Eight one six two three four four three six five. Or as the great reader Michael points out, eight one six beg idle. Um, okay, guys. I know I'm asking a lot here, but that's how it's going to be. Subscribe to the Sports Pass. Give the podcast a five star rating and review, and call in with questions. Okay, I know I'm greedy, but that's how it's going to be. Quick break, and then we are back with questions. Hey, Sam, this is Steve calling from Overland Park. So my uh, question is, so I'm, I'm wondering if you have noticed, if you've noticed any differences between John Sherman's ownership of the Royals compared to the David Glass era and what changes you, what changes you foresee over the next decade under Sherman? Or do you think they'll, they will be similar owners? So wondering if you have noticed any differences between John Sherman's ownership of the Royals compared to David Glass era and what changes do you foresee over the next decade under Sherman? Or do you think they will be similar owners? I think Sherman is uh, pretty uh, business oriented and uh, all about the money. Not, not, not as much buck night and things like that, but uh, anxious to hear your thoughts. Uh, like I said, this is Steve calling from Overland Park. Hope this helps. Yeah, buddy. So this is something I'm going to write more on this summer, hopefully. Um, but I'll tell you a few things right here. The first is that David Glass still gets a bit of an unfair bad rap in Kansas City, uh, which is you know basically like residue from a genuinely awful first few years in charge. But if you look at Glass's ownership in two parts, you know, like with the dividing line 2006, when he hired Dayton Moore and beefed up player development and other sort of, you know, organizational infrastructure that was long overdue, uh, I think you'll see an awful owner 
before 2006 and a pretty dang good one after. Uh, you know, Glass was completely uninterested in the sort of like politicking that some owners do. And by that, I basically mean he didn't do many interviews, did even fewer press conferences. Um, you know, he, he's not going to wave out the window in the seventh inning stretch like Ewing Kaufman or walk around the parking lot like the Hunts. Uh, he lived in Arkansas. So it was just easy for people here to think of him as like out of touch and absentee. Like I cannot even just, I mean, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said that David Glass doesn't go to games um, when he went to damn near all home games, um, yeah, it, it just, it, it was, it was crazy. Like the difference in, in perception and reality in, in that part. Uh, but, you know, anyway, so we're talking about differences, right, between Glass and Sherman. And that's a good place to begin because we're still learning a lot about John Sherman. But it's pretty clear, like whatever criticisms may or may not develop about John Sherman, like nobody with any credibility is going to be able to call him absentee. Right. Uh, and, and again, I'm going to write about this in, in more detail soon. And I want to learn a lot more still. Um, but at least at the moment, I think there are two major ways the organization is different with Sherman. The first is Glass really bought into the idea of a sort of like slow build, you know, where you, you take your L's for a few years, you know, with the idea that your potential good years will be better. And that obviously worked in spectacular results, you know, e even if the Royals didn't get enough out of 2016 and 2017. But that also comes with some obvious downsides, you know, like we tend to think that, you know, or take, I should say that that 2015 World Series championship is just like it's a given. But there are a lot of ways that that thing could have gone sideways. And, you know, I'm not just talking about the rain delay in game six of the ALCS, uh, you know, and Sherman has been pretty clear. He wants more consistent success, you know, like it, it's worth it to him to like cut out the valleys even if it means the peaks aren't quite as high, you know, the idea that, that like, uh, you know, the more times you're close, the more times you have a chance. And it's a really interesting thing here because this is basically the exact same front office that did it one way with impunity from the owner. And, and now they're trying to do it a completely different day, different way. Um, you know, the, the Sal Perez extension was essentially left to Sherman's choice by my understanding. And, and that contract is full of sentiment. Um, but I think for the most part, you're going to see a more transactional way of roster building. That Benintendi trade, very transactional. Uh, you know, Tim Hill, Nick Heath, like moves like that, like that, there's subtle but important difference in, in how this team is operating. The other major difference is, you know, sort of, uh, I guess I would say an acceleration of the Royals, like kind of diving deep into performance science. Um, you know, the front office was already working on a lot of this stuff before Sherman bought in, but I do think there's more energy and buy-in now, you know, to kind of get that stuff going to sort of like modernize how a lot of the organization is run, you know, make things work easier between departments instead of having certain things siloed away from each other. And, you know, sometimes you have redundancy and confusion. And, uh, so anyway, that, that's, but now we're getting into the weeds a little bit about like the sort of the background infrastructure that sometimes I don't know if, if fans really care about. So anyway, again, I, I'm going to learn more about this this summer and hopefully I'll have something for you on the website soon. Uh, it's a really, really interesting thing that we have going on here. Uh, so I'm glad I'm glad you asked the question. So, OK, uh, we've done a lot of Royals. Let's let's mix in some chief stuff here. Um, here's Jack. Hey, Sam, Jack from Gardner. Got two questions. Everyone's worried about the salary cap, but I've seen a couple of different places. It looks like it's going to go up $30, 40000000 million in the next year or two. 
if it goes up thirty, forty million dollars, Patrick Mahomes' contract is going to seem like a bargain, uh, especially in year five or six of it. So I don't see what the big problem is. Do you have any idea what exactly the numbers are going to be? And then two, with the Jayhawks getting Remy Martin, what do you think their rotation looks like next year, and where do you see them in the national rankings? Are they top three, top five, top ten? Um, what do you think it changes for them getting him? Thanks. So, look, I, I'm assuming KU will have a top five, maybe even top three roster this season, and that's going to set up a, a hell of an interesting ride, you know, as the the IARP committee uh, might have some sort of decision to make it in the middle of it. And, you know, I mean, potentially, like, think about this. Like, potentially, you, you could have, like, the number one or close to it team in the country playing under a postseason ban <laughs> or you know perhaps there's enough billable hours to push a decision or ban long enough that KU gets one last tournament before the punishments come I mean guys like for a local sports columnist like you got to admit like this is this is some juicy juicy stuff but let's let's put all that aside for now um I don't want to talk college basketball in June um and let's go to the main part of Jack's question here uh, Mahomes's contract won't become a bargain Mahomes' contract was a bargain the second he signed it, which, like, I look, I get it. It's That's a ridiculous thing to say about a half-billion-dollar contract being a bargain, but it was. Uh, you know, the money is just so spread out and done in this way that the Chiefs can manipulate the cap hits from year to year. I mean, like, truly, it is a work of art. You know, Chris Cabot, um, who is uh, Mahomes' main agent, he got the commitment and the money. Uh, but, you know, Brett Veach and Brent Tillis and Chris Shea and Clark Hunt, like they also made the numbers work. And so you asked about the cap. The cap is set to go from $182.5 million this fall uh, to 208.2 in 2022. That's a big leap. Um, you know, like that. that is that is what, uh, $25 million, $24, $26 million. Um, and before COVID, uh, teams were used to a jump of like, 10 to 15 million every year. Uh, but the bigger leap may come in 2023. You know, the new TV contracts are going to be calculated with that. So, you know, going from from uh, 208, like we could be looking at a cap of, you know, 230 million to 40, like who knows, maybe even more. Um, that's a little bit hard to project when we get that far into the future. So, but here's what we do know. Mahomes' first $40 million salary, uh, which by the way is is less than Ryan Tannehill's cap hit this year, just FYI. Uh, but Mahomes' first $40 million salary is scheduled for 2023. Uh, let's just for argument's sake, let's say the cap is $240 million by then. Um, and, and I cannot stress enough, like this is just a guess. It could be more, it could be less. But let's just say it's 240 Then we're really only talking about a small increase of the percentage of the cap that Mahomes has taken up. You know, it, it's going to be 12% this fall. It'll be 14% next season. And again, if it's 240 in in 2000. Uh, 23, like even with that $40 million cap or salary number, um, his cap hit would be about 16% in 2023. So, and after that, Mahomes' salary like essentially just plateaus for three more seasons. And, you know, you have to assume, parring another freaking pandemic, that you have to assume that the cap will just keep going up and up and up and up from there. So, look, like the reality is that there is, you know, basically no chance in the world that Mahomes is going to play out this contract, uh, you know, the, like as it is, like as it is written right now. The thing will get renegotiated probably a few different times. Uh, but for now, the thing to know about the deal is that it makes Mahomes happy financially, and it is not going to keep the Chiefs from being able to pay other good players. If if the Chiefs 
aren't able to keep a good supporting cast around Mahomes, it is not going to be because of his salary. Um, and I think that was the most important thing, certainly to the team, and I think uh, to Mahomes as well. So uh, anyway, like that contract, I can't, uh, it, it, again, work of art. It, it should be in Canton someday. Um, <laughs> God. Okay, uh, let's do one more. Um, here's Alan uh, with an interesting idea. Hey, Sam. Alan from Kansas City. We've spoken a lot, probably too much, about uh, a lot of uh, us not being able to watch the Royals or sporting games. Thinking about the opposite side, what about doing something in the interest of the fans? So I've got a trade proposal for you for Kansas City and St. Louis. Chiefs play one home game per year in their new outdoor stadium, and in exchange for that, the Blues play a certain number of games um, here in Kansas City, five six, seven, something like that. Interested if you would support this idea um, and your thoughts on what a good trade proposal would be. Thank you. Okay, so like just straight up, I don't like this idea. Uh, I, I think Kansas City gets more out of one Chiefs game than it would from five or six hockey games. So, uh, you know, look, St. Louis would take a preseason game, then I don't really care about that. But I'm including this question as a chance to talk about, you know, the NBA or NHL coming to Kansas City downtown. Look, this is sort of like the rolling roof conversation of our time, you know, this like evergreen debate over something that's probably not ever going to happen. But uh, it's the middle of June, <laughs> the NBA and NHL playoffs are going on. So what the heck? Um, here's where we are on this. <laughs> where we are is light years <laughs> from getting an NBA or NHL team. Uh, but, you know, perhaps a few light years closer than we were when it was AEG's call. And, you know, they quite literally could not have cared less about it. You know, we, we had Jarrett Sutton and Corey Wacknoff on the on the show last year. And, and there's sort of a like this bipartisan partnership of Mizzou and KU Kansas Cityans uh, working to, you know, help put our sort of civic best foot forward to the right people. And I believe those guys and others are doing some real work to at least put Kansas City in the conversation with with the NBA and to a lesser extent the NHL. But the hurdles are significant and, you know, not just because we're behind Seattle and perhaps others for the NBA. And, you know, we basically have zero hockey culture here to to sell the NHL on. So, you know, the, the biggest thing remains finding an owner with the money and interest to put a team in Kansas City and in an arena that will turn 14 years old this fall. Um, you know, John Sherman's Royals ownership group includes a lot of the money that would help supplement a basketball or hockey group. And, you know, there's there's some untapped folks, but they all have other interests, too. You know, often like the arts, philanthropy, uh, research. And, you know, there just there is not this level of like corporate sponsorship opportunities here, you know, that that exist in, you know, Vegas Austin, you know, some other places. So anyway, but one thing that I really do enjoy, and this is kind of the main reason I'm included in this question is, um, I, I, I love stuff like this, uh, and not just because of the content, like let's, let's put that aside. Um, but I, is this a weird thing to say? I, I just, I love it when Kansas city thinks big, you know, it, it, it seems to me that too often we think about the things we're not um, we think about the things we can't do, you know, instead of the things that we are and can do. And we need to think bigger and, you know, do it more often. 
and not just with you know putting a major pro team in the T-Mobile Center, but you know with schools and crime and development and transportation, a million other things. Like we're in this really interesting time in Kansas City. Like downtown is so much different now. It is such a better place to live and and work and visit than it ever has been before. And there's this like creative energy, you know, lots of like very well-intentioned people working on big problems. And I think that's true, like in most. In most of our lifetimes, I don't know how old you are, but I think it, it's true that in most of our lifetimes, there's never been more hometown pride for Kansas City than there is right now. And that stuff matters. And I, I just, I can't wait to see where it goes, you know, with or without an NBA or NHL team. Okay. Uh, soapbox, right? Um, all right. Let's do one more quick break. And then we are back with Dayton Moore. guys, uh, let's finish strong. I want to share with you part of this conversation I have with Dayton Moore this week. Uh, there's a lot going on with the Royals right now, uh, good and bad. Uh, but, you know, along with Mondesi's health, uh, I, I think the biggest frustration the club has right now is that it had these top shelf pitching prospects that have come up and so far given them just less than nothing. Uh, you, you probably don't want to hear the numbers, uh, but here they go anyway. Jackson Kowar and Daniel Lynch have combined to give up 28 base runners 18 earned runs in eight and a two-thirds innings. 28 base runners, 18 earned runs in eight and a two-thirds innings. Uh, It's a wild thing because there was not a person in baseball who didn't think these guys were ready for the big leagues. Um, You know, they're they're both going to turn 25 this year. Uh, Coar pitched in the College World Series. I mean, it it was just really surprising to see them each struggle this badly so far. Uh, So anyway, I, I thought Dayton gave a really thoughtful very thorough answer here in describing the process they go through in transitioning players to the big leagues. It's a longer clip. It's about three minutes, uh, but there's a lot of good information in here. And and I know it's something a lot of you have been wondering about this week. Uh, So here's Dayton to answer your questions. Okay. So in Lynch's cases, case and Coar's case, we clearly have an opportunity for a rotation spot. And based on the recommendation of, uh, our player development uh, people, specifically uh, the uh, our, our pitching coordinator, head of pitching development, Paul Gibson, the manager, and so like if we are going to move any player to the major leagues, I will have a, a conversation personally with Brian Polberg, who's in AAA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I rely on the recommendations of JJ and, and all of our people. I mean, people have made these recommendations, analytics, you know, BMAC, Scott Sharp, JJ, Lonnie, Renee, uh, have made these recommendations to me. And we talk about it. And then I will actually, after things kind of settle in a little bit, and I've got enough information to ask the appropriate questions, I'll call Brian Polberg or Paul Gibson and Paul Gibson myself and have a yeah. one-on-one conversation with them and then let them kind of put their stamp on it as well. But in all these cases, um, I mean, you, you, um, check with 
the medical team, okay? Is this kid okay? Is he all right? Is he dealing with anything? Hamstring, shoulder soreness, is he okay? Is he at his best? Because you don't want to bring a guy up unless he's at his yeah. best, okay? Right. So you check with the medical team. Yep, they sign on. Now you know ahead of time, so like in Coar's situation, we've known for two and a half, three weeks, we're getting ready to, with Duffy on the IL, we're getting ready to go through this 14-day spell where we're going to need a starter. You know, we had enough off days, we could manipulate it the best we could, and we were going to be fine. So we've known for two and a half, three weeks, and so we're we're lining him up. In his last outing, you saw him, he probably threw 65, 70 pitches. We limited his outing, and he was very, very sharp. Um, and knowing that we're going to need a starter, uh, you know, we had scouts go in and watch, watch him pitch. Scouts that had recently been in the major leagues as well, okay, watching major league pitchers, um, major league coverage, our major league scouts, go in, see him, tell me if you think he's ready. Uh, and so we buttoned up pretty good. Now, mm-hmm. we don't always get that opportunity, but when you're dealing with a Lynch, you're dealing with a Coar that's making their debut, that's kind of the process. So that's a lot of boxes to check, you know, and, and they probably don't need to be quite that thorough, if we're honest. Uh, there might be some redundancy there, but there's a, a lot of smart people in that room, and it can't hurt to have as many perspectives as possible. So, you know, some of this, uh, maybe you don't care about this, but some of this is done with some other motivations, too. Like, you know, some of those guys that Dayton mentioned, uh, particularly J.J. Piccolo, Daniel Mack. Uh, Rene Francisco, Scott Sharp, maybe I'm forgetting somebody, but th- those guys are going to be moving jobs, uh, you know, and they already have. Like, they'll, they'll move up in the organization or maybe look at a promotion somewhere else. And, you know, the more they're involved in these kinds of decisions, the better they'll be, the better the game will be. But uh, anyway, the, the Royals obviously expected better of these guys or the decision wouldn't have been made. And, you know, there's different factors going on. And, and I don't think it's smart to think that there's only one issue, but it's hard not to notice how nervous Lynch and Coar both appeared in their debuts. You know, like some of that's unavoidable. Like, you know, come on. Like, how would you not be nervous? Uh, right? Like, this is what you've worked for your whole life. You know, you're in a bigger stadium, bigger crowd, better hitters. Uh, but anyway, I asked Dayton if there was a way to like anticipate that and deal with it. So, um, okay, here he is. Honestly, Sam, I would say this that this is what I would say. Um, two pitchers especially in Coar's case, that have, that are older, they're mature, um, they've pitched at a high level. Coar pitched in the College World Series in front of you know, thousands of fans, mm-hmm. millions watching on television, performed extremely well. And there's nothing in uh, that we have seen that would um, challenge us or give us pause that mentally he's not ready for the major leagues. Yeah, I I, I didn't I didn't see I, I, you know that could happen to anybody. But there's another pretty obvious factor here, and I know we can sort of blame anything we want on COVID, um, you know. But th- that was a year plus a month of real competition and you know traditional development that these guys just didn't get. 
that messes with their plan, uh, their path, you know, and, and it also messes with like scouts ability to evaluate these guys. Um, here's Dayton again. I mean, we've had a lot of success at breaking guys into the major leagues and we always yeah. have, but I think a lot of people do. And, and, you know, this, this is still being developed. Um, and, and maybe, maybe this is the effect of our evaluation with COVID. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to yeah. say that because I'm not making any excuses at all. Uh, we have the data. I mean, there's nobody in our organization that said that those guys aren't ready for the next challenge. Sure. Nobody. Uh, you look yeah. at the data, you look at the scouting judgment, the work ethic, uh, who they are as teammates. This is all like particularly relevant because the best prospect the Royals have had in many many years is at double a northwest arkansas and you know you've seen the clips of bobby witt jr hitting home runs and sometimes he even touches home plate afterward but um anyway th this is going to be another big decision about timing it's a little bit different because you know he's a hitter and we've been talking about pitchers but i remember in the spring you know when when the royals were thinking about putting witt jr on the opening day roster um, Dayton said to me, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, like, how could I sleep at night if I thought we waited too long to bring him up and we end up a game or two out of a playoff spot? So, <laughs> look, here's their top prospect, you know, a guy they thought about putting on the opening day roster, and now he's just obliterating double-A pitching. So what's that process like, right? Um, here's Dayton talking about it. You know, I, I rely more today on you know the the data the information uh than i did 10 years ago um, when you say you know, data and information you mean analytics you mean like yeah, that kind of, yeah. kind of stuff okay yeah okay. i yeah. rely more on does he chase what's his hard hit rates mm -hmm. what's his what's his swing decisions like falls in the zone is he chasing a certain pitch um you know, was he get himself in good counts? I mean, a lot of that stuff you can recognize with the scouting judgment, but you know, you don't have the same scout that stands every single night, and the you know, yeah. the, and the data and the data doesn't lie. Not that a scout lies, but the, the data is I mean, it tells the truth with yeah, I know what, you what you're seeing each and every night is a consistent evaluation, and you know, so, but. You know, we, it's like I said, Sam, it's just, uh, gotta just continue to, you, you have your fingers on the pulse every single day of these guys. So look, I, I hope you find some of this interesting. Like I certainly did. I, I feel like I understand the process a little bit better, the things that an organization can and cannot control and you know how the front office goes through these decisions. Like uh, a few takeaways here, uh, for me at least, the level of surprise the organization had at Coar's nerves. Uh, it sure sounds like Bobby Witt Jr. won't be up in the next few weeks. And uh, I didn't include this part, but Dayton also said that, that Bobby Witt Jr. would probably go to Omaha before he comes to Kansas City. So there's a couple more steps uh, to still clear. Um, 
Okay, guys, that's the show. I appreciate you all for listening. I hope we're worth your time. One more time, please uh, reach out to me if you can help support us with the Sports Pass. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Uh, Thanks to everybody who called in, even those we couldn't get to. Big thanks to Savannah Smith for putting this together. And as always, the biggest thanks to you for giving us your time and letting us be a small part of your life. We'll be back next week, but uh, have a great weekend. Be kind.